the masters almost surely have a plan This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man And until you thoroughly tested every last close trusted view I find the more you think you know, the less you really do That's true, Dr. Zayas Where would we be without THC? Right, higher side chatters, you hear people saying that everything we've been taught is a lie, that our education system is little more than a propaganda machine, and that materialist science is just as much a religion as any of the others. And to a large extent, I do think they're right. We're presented with credentialed talking head experts that tell us there's nothing beyond the randomly self-exploding universe, that science has everything figured out, and the Nazi lab coats that stock NASA have no ulterior motives than to present the public with their latest research for the good of mankind. Well, over and over again during the course of this show, I've been surprised to find that truths I thought to be self-evident are actually conjured up to distract, deceive, and distort in deeper ways than many suspect, and we should be careful to routinely question the things we think we know. And with that said, ever since the infamous Eric DeBay episode, I've had a large segment of listeners clamoring for more exploration of the Flat Earth paradigm. We've also seen more and more researchers and guests open themselves up to the idea that reality's construct is just as much of a deception as the moon landings, false flag attacks, and Columbus discovering America. And while I still remain Earthshape agnostic, I'd rather hang around those who might go too deep as opposed to those who don't go deep enough. And that's why today's guest is Jaron Campanella. He's a fellow corporate retail hell refugee that I consider to be one of the most reasonable, rational voices in the Flat Earth community whose work I got into after a heavy recommendation from our good pal Marty Leeds. Jaron runs the popular Flat Earth-focused YouTube channel Jaronism with over 70,000 subscribers, and it's a real pleasure to have him here. Jaron, my man, welcome to the higher side. Hey, Greg, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Love the show. All right on, man. Thank you. And I do appreciate you being here. Like I said, I tend to be Earthshape agnostic, which pisses off both sides, because everyone is just so damn sure of something that I find to be almost too big to know. But I have really been impressed with some of the proofs the Flat Earth community uses, but others just don't seem quite as convincing, so I'm stuck. But I think the best way to open the door here is to show the major holes in the official paradigm first, so that people can see the need to rework the model or question what we've been told. So I guess to kick this off, what do you consider some of the most convincing discrepancies or flaws in what we're told would be the mainstream model. Yeah, thanks. Well, you know, all I ask from people is that they are open-minded and that they kind of understand where we're coming from with the whole idea of the flat earth. And I think many people just right off the bat, again, dismiss it as a crazy conspiracy theory or something that we've known for thousands of years. And really they need to look at the whole plate of information and kind of put themselves in the position of NASA or put themselves in the position of science and think about what would happen if at some point in your investigations that you realized that you were drastically wrong about something as fundamental as the shape of the earth. <laughs> and what would you do if you were NASA, for instance, you know, if you realized that you couldn't go to the moon and that you never will be able to, is that something that you would be able to release? And the answer is probably no that, you know, to continue on with what you're doing and to continue your research and to continue your money, to continue your funding from the government, you would need to make sure that you held up that Apollo myth for as long as possible. 
And that's what it seems like they're doing. So you need to kind of put yourself in that position, first of all. And then as far as the, you know, the best proof, you know, I would first of all say it's really a combination of all of my videos. It's made me a quote unquote flat earther. When you do the research and you really start looking into it, you have to realize that a lot of things are going to be explained away by science in some way or another. That should be expected. And then once you've gone through and looked at the history of everything and you've looked at quotes from major physicists and the way that they tell you how they come across their answers and what they basically base everything on, that's when you can kind of start to formulate your own opinion or your own theory. And that's basically what I've done is by looking at everything, you know, you can go to George Ellis, who is one of the mainstream physicists. And, you know, he said that he can construct a spherically symmetrical universe with the Earth at its center. And you could not disprove it by observations. And then he says that, you know, a lot of cosmology is based on a philosophical notion. And a lot of cosmology tries to hide that. And in that quote, I thought to myself when I first saw it, you know, here's a mainstream physicist telling people that a lot of cosmology, which is a science, tries to hide that. Hmm. So when I hear that and I realize, OK, so science is trying to hide some things or is keeping some things to themselves. Then I started exploring from that point, And really, you just get to these fundamental issues, which is like our senses. You know, I think that our senses can be trusted. We trust them every day, all day. And we don't realize that. And we also allow science to tell us your senses can't be trusted, that they're there to fool you or they will fool you. But really, when you break it down, yeah, if a, if a scientist develops some, maybe it's an illusion that they tell you to look at and stare at this dot for a certain amount of time, and then this dot will disappear or whatever. You've also got other effects that they do. And yeah, those are meant to fool your senses. So in those cases, your senses do fail you. But for the most part, your senses are exactly and do exactly what they should tell you things are hot, tell you when to cross the street, when not to cross the street, when something's safe, when it's not. And unless you're fooled, your senses always work as they're supposed to. But when it comes to things in the sky, when it comes to where you live, all of a sudden, again, they tell you that your senses fail you. So even though you can go outside, look at the sky and see stars that look to be really close, science tells us that the nearest star, other than the sun, is 25 trillion miles away. Mm -hmm. And people, I think, have a hard time even grasping what 25 trillion miles would be. I mean, you know, a trillion seconds is 31,000 years. So, you know, when you think about 25 trillion miles, that is just a ridiculous number. And they tell you that that's how far they are. And you have a choice, either believe in what men tell you or to believe what your eyes tell you. And when you look at the sun, it clearly, to me at least, traverses the sky. You know, the sun is what's moving, not the earth. And when it comes to the spin of the earth, we know nobody in the history of the world, 100 billion people, has ever felt the earth to be moving. Yet they tell us that it is and that our senses again fail us. So, you know, those are some of the biggest proofs to me. Water definitely always finding its level, always being flat. That's something that until I see evidence in the contrary, it's hard for me to just accept that the ball that they show me on TV or the ball that NASA gives me, the blue marble, is something that exists in reality. To me, it looks like a depiction. It looks like a drawing. It looks like CGI. And so when I see that and I see the water hanging upside down or sideways, it tends to not meet my opinion of the world based on my senses. And so I used to think that my senses do fail me often. 
now I don't. I, I now think that for the most part, my senses, unless they're fooled, do the job they're supposed to. And my senses tell me that the earth is flat. Hmm. Well, it is interesting you bring up that nearest star. This is something I was going to get into later. But when I was getting ready for the show, I did a little math in regards to what we're told about space and the stars. And I do find this a little fishy. So we're told the sun is a little over 800,000 miles in diameter. It's 93 million miles away and looks about the size of a dime from our perspective on Earth. Meanwhile, these other stars are trillions of miles away. In fact, that nearest star, and just keep in mind how many stars we actually see in the night sky, thousands of them, the next nearest is said to be 24 trillion miles away, and all other stars would have to be further than that. And we can see them? I mean, they're supposed to be 24 trillion miles of line of sight in space in almost all directions? Yeah. That. That, that doesn't sound right to me. I mean, 24 trillion miles of line of sight, and it's something you can always see. Nothing ever crosses that path. I don't know. It does seem odd. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And I mean, really, when you look at the sun being, uh, what do they say? You know, it would take eight minutes for us to know that it blew up or something, they tell us, because it's eight light minutes away. So if you doubled that, and then picture as we double this distance that the sun is reducing its size. So it double that, that's 16 light minutes, and then double that again. Now you're looking at a light half hour, and then double that again, and you're looking at a light hour. Well, stars are light years away. Yet, even in the light hour, you know, would you still be able to see the sun after you've doubled the distance, doubled the distance, doubled the distance? Seems to me that the sun would disappear relatively quick in a light hour, maybe a light day, but never be visible in a light year or multiple light years as is the case with the stars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it is a curious thing. And to kind of dive deeper into the, the problems with the mainstream theory, I've heard you talk about how the math just doesn't work for the heliocentric globe model. What are you referring to there? I'm sure some of these things we're talking about now, but can you give us some other examples? Well, as far as the math, you know, mostly when you're talking about the speeds and the orbits and things like that, I mean, I do think that space is a mathematical construct. So I definitely do think the math itself works, but that doesn't mean that I find it to be reality, right? I mean, I've said before that if I told you I had $4 million in the bank and that I was spending $2 million today and then a million tomorrow, that we would all agree that I would have a million dollars left after that. The math works, but that's not reality. I don't have $1,000 in my bank account. <laughs> you know, so math works, yes, but it doesn't always imply that what you're talking about mathematically exists in reality. So when you talk about the Earth spinning at 1,000 miles per hour or going around the sun at 66,000 miles per hour or the sun and everything going around the Milky Way at 480,000 miles per hour. These speeds are all needed in their model. And the question becomes, do they work in reality or are they reality? Really, if you picture yourself getting up away from the Earth right now, if we kind of took off in a little spacecraft and got outside of the Earth and we're looking at the whole, say, solar system, everything would actually be standing still. That crazy speed seems crazy, but it's because of the distance we have to travel, right? And we have to go 66,000 miles per hour to get all the way around the, I think it's 585 million mile yearly track that we have to go around the sun. And as crazy as that sounds and as fast as that sounds, if you got up and were looking at the whole system right now in real time, everything would be standing still because the distances are so vast that that's why the speed numbers are so big. So it really seems to me to be a construct. Anybody who tells me the sun that's in the sky 
is 93 million miles away and that it's a million times bigger than the Earth, that's pretty crazy. And they better have a lot of evidence and proof to show me that. And I don't think that they've ever gone that route. It's not like they waited until we were old enough to question things to teach us these numbers and the way that the globe works. They taught it to us when we were in you know, first and second grade at a period in time where none of us had the capacity to even understand what they were telling us. And when you don't have a chance of coming out of fourth, fifth, sixth grade without being a staunch believer in the globe model, really, it's a great setup if you're trying to deceive people because, you know, you get to this age and when you bring it up to people, they will not even want to hear you because of what it implies. And that implies that everything that they've believed their entire life may not necessarily be the truth. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And what I do love about your channel and your work is you have the numbers and the details of the conventional paradigm down pat. And it's just so funny because you bring this up to a lot of regular folks and, and they'll be like, oh, this is ridiculous. The earth is clearly round. And you say, okay, well, what's the diameter or the circumference of the earth? Like what are, what are any of these numbers that you take blind faith in? You just think, oh, they've got it, but you really don't know anything about it, but you're so sure that's the way it is. It's like you can actually tell them you're supposed to be 25,000 miles around. And it's just interesting that they don't even know these things and you know their paradigm better than the so-called true believers. It's, it's the way you have to do this kind of research. Yeah, you have to know what it is that you are saying isn't true. And for me, that was a big part of it, is going through and actually looking at these numbers and just coming into some, some strange ones. I mean, for instance, the idea that the sun, you know, as far as seasons, they say that seasons are based off the angle of the sun because during our summer, are you in North America? Yes, yeah, San Diego. Okay, yeah, so we're both in California. So when the sun is, and this will be something you can tell me what you think, but the sun would seem to me to be much closer during the summer. It seems to be definitely more above my head during the summer. It's definitely further south and it's lower in the sky. Seems like it's further away. If I go out and look at a sunrise during the summer, I can feel the heat on my face. Whereas if I go out during the winter when the sun is at zenith, you know, which would be at 12 o'clock, I don't really feel the sun. I can see it off in the distance, but it doesn't feel warm to me. Mm -hmm. So the mainstream belief is that the sun is actually 3 million miles closer during our winter. And that to me is just crazy. And, and 3 million miles may not seem like much when you're talking 93 million miles, but then again, it's 375 Earth diameters. So if you picture, you know, the Earth is a ball and then make 375 more of those balls, that's how closer the sun is during the winter for us. And I mean, that to me doesn't seem to be the truth. It just doesn't seem like it's a fact. And that's what they tell us. And so for me, it's easier when I look at the flat Earth model and I look at how that's been laid out for us and the ideas that people are starting to come to around the idea of the flat Earth. That's one in which it shows that the sun is clearly closer to me during the summer. And so, you know, I have to go with which evidence best fits my reality. Mm -hmm. And man, as a conspiracy enthusiast, I'm always frustrated in an argument when someone responds with, well, it's just too big of a secret. There would be too many people involved. I, I've heard that on everything from 9-11 to the moon landings. And it's a pretty big assumption to hang your beliefs on. But at the same time, I do find myself making this very argument about the flat earth model. However, when you consider career fields that would involve the shape of the earth, like surveying, you do find some interesting things. To quote your website, you say, 
You would think that a surveyor, one who is attempting to retrieve the most accurate results of the ground they are surveying, would have to adjust for or take into account the curvature of the Earth. But this is simply not how it is done. Notice, to begin chapter 2 below from the Basic Surveying Methods Guide, it states that most surveying activities are performed with the pseudo-assumption that measurements are being made with reference to a flat horizontal surface. Then in diagram 2.1 comes a classic line, quote, By definition, the curved surface of a sphere is termed a level surface. And, I mean, that's a fairly strange statement, you got to admit. <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of them like that. I mean, really, when you look at it, it's basically a, a war of words, because if you ask somebody who's a globe believer, you know, well, why is it sea level at, say, San Diego and also sea level in Australia? And they'll tell you that both of those positions are level. That's the word that they will use. And so you're like, OK, well, then the earth is flat. It's a plane. And they'll say no, because both areas, the sea level in San Diego and in Australia, are both equal distant from the center of the Earth, and therefore they're level. And, and that's where a lot of people just get to the point where you have to kind of throw up your hands and say, well, if that's allowed, then you're right, you'll never be disproven as far as the globe, because you're just able to use metaphysical ideas. And to me, the whole idea of a ball and things pulling to the center of a sphere and gravity pulling to the center... Those things have not been proven, as should be required of things before they are taught to first graders. I've asked people before, you know, show me where things pull to the center of a sphere. And they'll pull up some picture from the ISS where these guys are squeezing water out of a straw into a little ball. And I'll say, OK, now that's them squeezing the water into a ball. Why don't you dump a pitcher of water in the you know, space station? Well, the pitcher of water would never get together and form a sphere. It would be a disgusting mess all over the place. Mm -hmm. And I've actually seen them drop like 30,000 ping pong balls inside of one of these parabolic flights. And they didn't join together and make any kind of sphere. They went all over the place until the plane came out of its parabolic arc and then they fell to the floor. So to me, those are things that if I saw evidence that things pulled to the center of a sphere and you know these massive conglomerations of mass would then generate more things to the surface of the sphere, then I might start to believe it. But to me, I don't ever see that. I don't see any evidence of that. I don't see any evidence that there can exist a sphere with water on its surface that doesn't fall off. Or And these are the kind of things that <laughs> make you have to say, is this really the truth or is it a metaphysical, mathematical concept that they've convinced people is true and really isn't backed by the kind of evidence that should be required of anything that's considered scientific? Mm. <laughs> and. Yeah, the gravity thing is where a lot of the debates on flat Earth and round Earth seem to devolve into. To further your point there, another quote from your site is you say, a balloon filled with hydrogen, which is the lightest of the gases and lighter than nitrogen, oxygen, and the rest of the elements that make up air, will rise if released. A balloon with helium will do the same because it is also lighter than the air around it, but it will rise up slightly slower. If, however, you have a baseball and release it, it will fall to the ground. Not because of gravity, as you were taught, but because the baseball weighs more than the air around it. Gravity is simply a magical word used for an all-encompassing force that does whatever is needed of it, and in most cases it is used to prove a ball earth. I think that's a fairly decent summary of what gravity would mean, or what this force would be, to a flat earther in their model. 
Yeah. And the only argument I've really got based on my opinion of what gravity is, is the continuing question of, well, why does it fall down? You know, why doesn't it fall up or why doesn't it fall to the side? And to me, it's just not a fair argument because if it did fall any other direction, then that would be down. So it's not, you know, that's not really a good argument against what I'm saying. What I'm saying is simply the earth seems to be constructed the way that you would expect, which is the heavier elements being at the bottom. And as you go up, things get lighter. And those things help me explain, you know, like you said, a helium balloon, which clearly has mass, but it weighs less than the air that's around it. So it rises up. And I've yet to heard anybody who believes in the conventional idea of gravity be able to explain a helium balloon. Because to me, if you're believing in the Newtonian you know, idea of gravity, then you have two things of mass, the Earth and the balloon, filled with helium, and they should be attracted to each other. That's what gravity is. It's that pulling force to pull those two things of mass together. So why is the helium balloon allowed to disrespect gravity and do what it wants and move away from it? And that's something I haven't heard. They'll bring in buoyancy and they'll bring in other things like that, but they still don't answer the question of why have you described a force, a pulling force between two things of mass, yet in this case, it's allowed to go against that. So to me, it just makes more sense than when you really look at the word gravity, which comes from gravitas, which means weight. That's what I think essentially you know, gravity is. It's simply the weight of items. And if they're heavier than their surrounding area, they're going to fall down. And if they're lighter, they rise up. And it's that simple. And I think that, yeah, the idea of gravity is kind of a magical word and they need it. And when they looked at the universe and saw galaxies and things in the distance didn't act as they were supposed to or as gravity dictates, well, they didn't go back like you're supposed to in science and reevaluate your theory of gravity. Instead, they just made up dark energy and dark matter and just said, these things exist. We've never observed them, but they must exist. And the reason why for that ultimately is because they know they can't go back and examine gravity or else how is the earth a ball to start with? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's an interesting point. And so a lot of the time when trying to make a case for a huge, widely accepted lie, I find it helpful to go back to the origins of that lie and lay out where it comes from, how it was spread. Can you talk to us a little bit about the heliocentric globe model and how such a paradigm change could have been accomplished? I mean, what can be said about the people involved and their affiliations that might cause us to be more skeptical of their motivations here? Like, who's behind this? Yeah, it just depends on whose evidence you believe, because really now what science has done is they've taken away the idea of the flat earth and said, no, it was just a concept that was invented and that it never was believed that you know people have known for thousands of years. When really, if you look at it and do some of your own research, you'll see books that clearly were written in the 1800s that talk about the fact that Columbus was somebody saying that he thought that it wasn't true. And that he could go around. And there was a lot of people at the time, Spanish queens and kings and people like that, that were a believer that if you went off that direction, that you would just disappear. You would fall mm -hmm. off the edge or whatever they believed. I was taught that. Yeah, exactly. And that seems like it was kind of the truth. Now, at a certain point, they wanted people to stop believing that. So they said, oh, no, it was Washington Carver. And he made up this story about Columbus thinking this. And really, people have always known but if you think about it, I mean, the printing press didn't come into you know existence until the 1600s. So before that, nobody was really a learned scholar. You would add scribes that knew how to read and write. But besides that, most people were illiterate. So anything that they would have 
thought or believed would have been by word of mouth. And so there wasn't a general idea of, oh, all these scholars believe this or that. I think what happened was is that they realized when they started printing books that they could print whatever they wanted. And I do agree with the idea a little bit where you say, well, this is too big of a conspiracy because it certainly seems like this is so monumental and so big about the very foundation of where we live. But really, when you take a look and step back and see that by putting it in books, it would have taken but one generation to have the people who were taught that become your teachers. And then they teach the new students. And from there, you know, the whole story would kind of go on its own. And that's kind of what I think happened. And, you know, if you ask me personally, I do think that they originally, some of these guys of science thought that the earth was a ball. They saw boats go off in the distance. They would slowly disappear. And to them, it would look like they disappeared from the bottom up. And then when it, they said, oh, those people must have fell off or they, you know, who knows what. Well, when the people came back, they said, where were you? Where'd you go? They said, well, we just went that way. And they said, oh, we thought you disappeared. And they said, no, you just keep going. So they kind of said, oh, well, they must be going around a ball. So I do think that they believed that for a period of time. Now, when they would have realized that wasn't the truth, I'm not really sure if it would have been, you know, 1700s, 1800s. I don't know when that would have been. But when they did realize it, I think that they realized, shoot, if we admit this now after they kind of, you know, outs the church and told the church you were wrong and science is better than the church, which I agree with. And I don't want to live in a world that's, you know, run by the Catholic church either. So, you know, I appreciate science for doing what they did in that regard. But at a certain point when they realized they were wrong about something, they should have been upfront about it and said, you know, our investigations have shown that this is actually true. And then they go on from there. But I really think that the idea of a flat earth kind of leads to the idea of a creator or a purpose or a reason or a specialness about the earth. And I think that science was always afraid of that and then always afraid that they would be doing themselves a disservice by admitting that they were wrong about that. And I think they took the lesser of two evils. They just figured we'll keep up with this lie and we'll be able to continue our march of science as long as we don't tell people this truth. You know, and that's where it becomes anybody's guess. It depends on the, you know, the research that you do, whether or not you see that same kind of feeling. But it looks to me like a lot of science has always tried to be in every facet against the idea of a creator or any question that comes to mind that they can't answer. So the whole idea of the earth being the center of the universe is the same thing, that they will never allow anything to be anywhere close to the earth being at the center because the next question becomes, you know, who put us here or why? Why are we the center? And that's something science can't answer. So instead, they would rather push us out to the outskirts of some arm of the Milky Way and say that, you know, oh, we're on a balloon and it's expanding. And so everything's moving away from us because really all things can be explained much easier by saying we're the center of the universe. Then it makes sense that all galaxies move away from us because we're the center. And there's a lot of observations that prove that, but science won't even consider that thought. And that's what tells me that they're not exactly science. You know, it's not science like we were taught with the scientific method and not being biased. I mean, they're completely biased. Again, I understand why. I mean, I think my wife said it the other day. She said that you know, peer review is just a veiled word for conspiracy. And it, mm -hmm. it, it kind of is. Yeah. That the idea of peer review is really just men getting together who, and we have to understand that they're human beings. I think we were taught this idea of scientists, like they're above petty human thoughts and opinions when really they are humans. And all of us have to agree that, you know, Neil deGrasse Tyson or somebody like that is never going to consider 
the thought that maybe they've been lying to people for 30 years, hmm. that maybe the things that they studied in school aren't the truth, and maybe they've been standing up in front of audiences for years and teaching a false idea. They can never even consider that thought. And because all their friends are in the scientific community, all their family considers them smart. And so, you know, that's where I start to see, oh, okay, that makes sense to me that a peer review group, which is say 30 guys, say 300 guys, doesn't matter, who have spent their entire careers building their ideas and thoughts and papers around a certain foundation. And so any paper that comes across their desk that is questioning that very foundation, I don't think they're in a position to even question that truthfully. Right. Yeah. You're even being pretty kind, giving them the benefit of the doubt, because I would think a guy in a position like Neil deGrasse Tyson would be a willful deceiver rather than just someone who's stubborn on something they you know, were taught in school. But you are right about those pretty serious spiritual implications for the flat earth model. And I'm honestly not in love with them, but I can see how if the elite's goal was to distract humanity from the idea of a creator God, you would have to go to these lengths to do it. You would have to create an entire narrative and paradigm that could explain the emergence of our reality without that creator. And it seems very difficult to do, and they've had to go to great lengths to do it. But there are also apparently deep esoteric deceptions promoted by Freemasonry, even to the point that the square and compass, their symbol, I mean, a square measures things on a flat surface, a compass makes a circle. And I think it was Manly P. Hall said that at the deepest levels of Freemasonry, it has to do with the shape of the earth, that flat is for the profane masses and a sphere is enlightened. And I think this is almost just like their religious doctrine they're trying to force out into the culture. But it is weird. The deeper you get into conspiracy, the more intertwined religion, spirituality, and the cult do seem to be at the center of so much. We have these ancient myths and archetypes also of characters trying to get one over on the gods or overcome this creator who regulated us to this construct. And I have had a lot of guests talking about their thoughts on the elite's true agenda to sort of jailbreak our environment, which sort of lines up with these mythological stories. Maybe it's a pattern that just keeps repeating. But do you consider that some aspect of the elite's agenda that it might be in line with this idea of busting out of here or at least trying to? Yeah, and I've seen a lot of evidence of it. One of the places at NASA is called the Neutral Buoyancy Lab. It's where they've got that huge pool. It's like one of the biggest pools in the world. And they do all their training for spacewalks inside of it. And there's this big mural on the side of the wall that's got kind of the Vitruvian man. And he's inside of this circle. And then there's a scuba diver swimming to him and handing him a tool. And in the upper corner is a rocket that is breaking out of a glass enclosure mm -hmm. that is closing this man in. And so, yeah, I see it everywhere. And, you know, one of the Masonic terms that they use or, you know, one of their little sayings is on the level that the Masons are on the level. And I've always you know considered that in, <laughs> interesting. Right. And so, yeah, it seems like the whole idea of the square and compass and the way that the sun rises and sets is all tied together. I mean, that whole angle that they have of the compass is the angle difference between the sun rising at each of the solstices from your location, meaning that there's that same angle if you look at where it rises those two different times a year. So I, I think that it definitely is encoded in these ancient beliefs and these ancient thoughts. It's pretty obvious to me, and a lot of people just want to ignore the connections with 
NASA and the occult, Jack Parsons and the occult. Mm. I mean, it's you, you've seen it more than anybody that it is everywhere. Right. And another thing I found interesting in your videos is the breakdown of how much science fiction actually inspired the, quote, real science. For example, uh, Arthur C. Clarke, he came up with the idea for satellites in an article about hypothetical future technology. NASA seems to have constructed the moon landing missions around a template from a Jules Verne book, like three American astronauts, multiple similarities. They recovered the pod from the ocean. It's like they just copied what he wrote and then did a stagecraft version of it and promoted it as real. And also, William S. Burroughs went so far as to say in a speech that science fiction writers, quote, laid the blueprint for the space age. And mm -hmm. it does start to get you thinking, how strange would it be for real technologies to actually follow behind works of fiction so closely? Yeah, it's really strange, especially, like you said, the Jules Verne book. And there's a lot of instances where people who have called certain events hoaxes seem to have been basically crafted after some story that was written years earlier. I don't know if you've heard about the book, The Titan. Mm-hmm. The Titanic. Right, which is the book that was written about the Titanic and was about a boat, the Titan, that was sailing in between London and New York. It's almost the exact same story. They didn't have enough lifeboats to you know, save everyone on board. It's just crazy that these events would happen right after these books were written. And when you go and look into these authors... They're usually a part of these Masonic clubs or, or groups. So, yeah, definitely interesting stuff there. And, and you're right about Arthur C. Clarke and the idea of satellites. And really, you know, that's one that I think is really gets people upset <laughs> when you say that satellites don't exist. And when I say that, you know, I don't discredit or say that they can't put balloons up that stay up for an incredible amount of time. They can basically control their rising and falling such a small amount that they can keep them up for, you know, up to a year at a time. So I don't discredit that our direct TV satellite could be pointed towards some balloon in the sky. You know, that's not out of the realm of possibilities at all. But what is out of the realm of possibilities, in my opinion, is these huge metal crafts that go up and get placed into orbit because they're all based on basically Arthur C. Clarke and Newton. And Newton basically told a thought experiment where he said if he had a cannon at the top of the earth and if you shot it short, it would hit the earth. And if you shot it too far, too fast, it would go out into space. But if you shot it at the perfect speed, that it would fall and just continue to fall around the earth for all time. And I think that that is something that, again, hasn't been proven to the level that I think it should be if we're going to all believe in these satellites that would be out there getting pelted by solar storms, would be getting hit by micrometeoroids and all this damage should be done in the very hot thermosphere. Right. <laughs> and it just seems crazy. And they have these little jets on them that keep them in orbit. And I know people say they see them. But again, you don't know what you're seeing. It could be a balloon. It could be a balloon that's glistening in the sunlight that's up not even as high as they tell us. But yeah, for all that they give us with GPS. And I mean, if you believe in GPS, the idea of these satellites that are up there that are basically triangulating your location you have to believe that these things are measuring the time that it takes to send things by the speed of light and then multiplying that a lot when really we know how triangulation works and you can just simply do it on a 2D plane with three locations, basically three points. And then wherever you're at, you send out these beams. And by using those three points, you can narrow it down to one spot by just using radiuses of circles that if you have point number A, and there's a radius around it, well, now you know that this person is located at a certain radius from that circle, 
and then you go another circle from another tower and wherever it's at now you're narrowed down to two locations because those two circles would only cross at two points and then you do it again from the third location and that will give you your exact location so this is something that i think the loran system and glonass and these kind of things there's been papers written that hey if we do this kind of gps from ground based stations it would be exponentially cheaper and so mm-hmm. to believe in satellites you have to believe that we want to do things more expensively we want to take into account the speed of light when these beams are going through atmosphere and and weather which would you'd think slow down these beams yet people want to believe in the idea of satellites for whatever reason when i think it was just a story and a way to steal money <laughs> Provocative, man. And I've also looked pretty heavily into the accounts of early explorers, especially around the polar regions, because I've been a fan of the hollow earth theory for a long time. And when you read what some of these explorers have said about birds around the North Pole migrating further north or warm polar seas, you find a lot that you wouldn't expect to find in the traditional model. And the treaties and regulations that keep people away from these areas only adds fuel to the speculation. But I've heard you talk about explorers like Captain Cook and Magellan and that their logs actually support a flat earth model. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, and I think that's, you know, the tough subject because when those guys got back and turned their logbooks over to the king or queen, it was years until those logbooks were made public. So it's hard to know what exactly was changed, especially like Cook's second journey, which was the one where supposedly he claims to have not found the southern continent and says that, you know, basically one doesn't exist. But when he got back and turned his logs over, it wasn't until after he was dead until that logbook even came out, which was on his third journey. So that's how long it takes for these logs to even come out. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where I start questioning. But yeah, when you look at the distances that they traveled, Magellan or, or Cook, Cook did, I think, you know, almost 60,000 miles on his second journey. And when you look it up online, you'll find the path that they'll show you the path, but it's basically like he just wandered around going north, going south, going north, going south. Same thing with Magellan, who didn't even make it back. He died on that journey as well. And then you look at the British ship Challenger, which went around the south, and I think it came back at 69,000 miles. So when you hear that and you realize, okay, well, with an equator of 24,901, a journey around the southern latitudes should be less than that. I could see it being equal to that if you were not quite sure where you were going and you were traveling north and south. But to think that it would be three or four times the circumference of the globe seems ridiculous to me. And it makes more sense when you look at the flat earth model that they were traveling in a circle around the flat earth. Mm -hmm. And the rings. Yeah. Right. It's interesting. And of course, every case for the hollow earth is going to bring up Admiral Byrd before long. But how do you interpret that saga from a flat earth perspective? Yeah, you know, for me, I have a hard time putting any faith in any kind of Mason. Fair enough. So with with Bird, I've I've never really put much into him because I think also the journey, the logbook that talks about him going into the earth, I think was written by his nephew, if I'm not mistaken, or not written by his nephew. His nephew found it. Right. And said that, you know, it was written by Bird. But we can't be sure of that. But, you know, as far as the idea of going north and finding lush lands and mountains. And, you know, I definitely don't discredit that. I think for my opinion of the flat earth is a little different. You know, a lot of people draw the idea of the Gleason's map. Well, I tend to think that if you really took a plane of existence, kind of picture all these continents on a plane, 
and you created this idea of longitude and latitude with the center being the North Pole, that you could trap people in that area as a circle. Because anywhere you travel, your compass has to adjust to the north. And so you're basically just going to be doing circles around the north. And that's what it looks like they did. So as far as if you went further into the north, and who knows what your compass would do. I've never been there. I can't say. But maybe somebody thought they were going into the earth and did see lush gardens or lush mountains and, and animals. And so those are the kind of things. I mean, I don't know. Have you looked into the idea of the Iron Republic? Have you read that book yet? No, I have not. Very interesting. So, yeah, there's this guy, J.T. Ellington, I think, or J.P. Ellington, who wrote in a 1902 issue or a volume of the Florida magazine, which only lasted 1900 to 1903. And in that magazine, he wrote a story called The Iron Republic. And at the beginning of it, he talks about how when the story's over, that the ideas of science are going to need to be rewritten to a zetetic method because the earth is a plane. And then he goes on to tell a story that basically he lost some election and bought a boat and went down south. And when they were traveling down there, they saw this opening like an inlet. And they went into it and there was like a, such a strong current that it carried them all the way through this inlet. And when they came out the other side, they didn't know where they were. They just kept traveling. After a month or two, they ran into a new continent called the Iron Republic. Sounds like a fantastical story. But the more you read it, he starts talking about airplanes and magnetic levitation being used as means of mass transit talks about basically like Siri or those kind of things, uh, you know, basically a box that sits on your desk that tells you the news and things like that. So he's talking about all these things in 1902. Actually, the story was written around that time, 1902 or 1901. So it seems crazy that he would ever tell the story. And it was over the course of several issues. And then at the end of the story, He's kind of coming back and saying, okay, I'm coming back home. And he starts talking about the 24-hour sun and how the globe works. It completely seems like a new author. <laughs> and for anybody who reads like I do, you can tell an author's writing style. And I can tell that the end of this story is written by somebody else. Hmm. It's not the same author. So crazy things like that. And what basically he was saying is that there is another side or you know, more water beyond Antarctica that he went through this so-called ice wall because it opened up. And so then I started thinking about the whole idea of global warming. And are they afraid that maybe during certain times it gets so warm that chunks of the Antarctic continent or ice ring, whatever, fall off and maybe inlets open. And they want to really make sure that nobody notices or sees that they can go through that to another side. <laughs> so there's lots of things that are interesting about the hollow earth or people have called it puddle theory, which is yeah. basically like, we are a puddle, right, in the middle of ice. Right, yeah, and that the ice walls are just barriers between different pens for humanity. <laughs> right, yeah, it's crazy. Man, I love that kind of stuff. And in one of your videos, you also talk about a few Arctic explorers that recorded seeing land in the north that never made it on the official maps. For example, Perry said he discovered a new landmass he called Crocker Land, and then there was another explorer who recorded a place he called Bradley Land. I guess you could say that these were possibly misidentified places, but what are your thoughts on those records and what actually might be in what we refer to as the North, but I guess would actually be the center of the bullseye in the Flat Earth model? Yeah, and I think that what it comes down to there is that it's hard to trust any of that, right? Because we don't right, know. Right. And so for me, I just think it's so important that we get actual real explorers who are willing to go out and look for these things now and not just 
go with the mainstream narrative, which is everything's been discovered. We live on this ball. Every piece of it's been explored and just drop it at that. You know, I think that there's so much more that can be traversed or looked into or researched. And they're clearly not allowing that kind of research. Like Antarctica is the key to whether or not the Earth is a globe. And they have the Antarctic Treaty. People think you can just go down there, but it's not that easy. You know, they've got laws saying you can't carry fuel below 60 degrees. And if that's the case, then you can't go down there for any amount of time because you'll run out of fuel. So you basically can go down there, cruise around for a little bit, and you have to get right back up. All the cruises that go down there all go to that little, I don't know what you want to call it, a little island tail that kind of pops out by South America. All the cruises go down there. It's not like you can go to different areas. And all the people who work there work in very specific locations. And I've even read blogs from those people saying, you're not even allowed to go on your own anywhere. You always have to take somebody with you. And even if you do take somebody with you, there's only three or four little trails that you have to stay on. You're not allowed to do your own exploring. So there's a lot of things set up there that seem like if they were trying to deceive people, that's exactly how they would do it. And the fact that, you know, no planes fly over the South and they'll tell you something about the weather, which makes no sense because planes are at 35,000 feet. And when they're up there, they're at negative, you know, 50 or 70 degrees Fahrenheit anyway. So it's not like the fact that the Southern continent is cold has anything to do with, with air flight. So it just really comes down to, I want people to just explore and open their minds to the idea that it's possible that we're being deceived. And that's when you'll get people going out and doing their own research. And we're going to find out one way or the other, whether what we've been taught is true or whether it hasn't. Mm -hmm. And it is a lot harder to wrap your head around than people think it is. If you look at the flat earth map next to the globe paradigm, it's not you know, the ice ring, it sounds like something that would be really easy to disprove, but it's really not because from any continent, if you go, quote unquote, south, you would hit that ice wall. And in reality, you would just think you were on the continent of Antarctica. It's actually quite difficult. And one thing I hear both sides using for evidence is flight paths. And I know you've done videos where you have looked at very specific flights and their distances and the times of arrival. And so, you know, Obviously, you've done the research, but when I look at the flat earth map and say maybe uh, Australia to South America would be the flight that might give it away. Uh, I know you've been through these arguments before, but what would you say about mm -hmm. flight paths and using that as evidence to try to determine the real shape? Yeah, and you know that would have been something that really led me to the idea of it being a globe if it wasn't so easily dismissed, and I'll explain why, but you know, we've seen somebody take the flight from Sydney to South America. And that flight, I believe it's 6,000 miles that it's listed as. And the flight takes about 11 and a half hours going the direction of east. Going west, it takes like 13 or 14 hours, which that alone, you know, should call into question the globe because that's the way the globe spins. It should be the opposite, but isn't because of trade winds and jet streams. But just going back to Sydney to South America, what we're basically saying, when you look at the idea of a globe versus the flat earth, that the flat earth would have more area than a globe. And, and people should know that, right? If you took a flat piece of paper and tried to wrap it around a ball, that you're going to have extra paper, right? The right. globe is actually less surface area. So in doing that idea, you can see that if you're going to make a flat plane where we live fit to a globe, you would have to eliminate 
certain areas of that flat piece of paper. Well, you're not going to eliminate land because people would catch on to that, but you could eliminate big sections of ocean. And by doing that and then setting up a GPS system, what I was trying to point out is if you have planes flying from Sydney to South America, that as they're flying, the only way that the plane knows how fast it's going and the only way that the pilots know how fast it's going is by ground-based GPS. The plane does know how fast it's moving through the air, but we've also seen that there's jet streams down there that move 200 or you know 250 miles per hour. So once you realize that, and there's no way the plane would be able to know that, meaning the jet stream is moving all the air in that direction, the plane is flying through the air at a certain miles per hour, and it can't go over the, you know, the speed of sound or create a sonic boom, but you can set a plane to say 0.95 Mach, and the plane will maintain that speed. But it doesn't always mean that's the speed the plane's going, because if it's in a jet stream, say it's a 200 mile per hour jet stream, well, the plane's going 650 miles per hour, it's at 0.95 Mach. Well, whatever the jet stream is, is moving that whole mass together, meaning it doesn't change the speed that the plane is going through the air. So once you realize that, then you realize if somebody did eliminate ocean by just cutting it out of kind of our map, that there would be no way for anyone to know, except for the person who did that. And if you start to think about it that way, I started thinking, well, wouldn't GPS know that they're in a place that's weird? That, for instance, GPS is like, hey, this plane isn't registering on any area that we know exists. Well, what's certainly interesting is in the South, all the planes that go across the Southern Ocean disappear from GPS for a huge amount of time. Hmm. Like the planes that go Sydney to South America, they're missing from GPS tracking for a good 80% of the flight. Really? Yeah. So the question becomes, why are these planes disappearing? And they'll describe it as, oh, they're too far out of radar range, which again brings into question the idea of satellites. Well, I thought we had satellites tracking planes. Right. Then you look at something like, and I don't know your opinion of MH370. Some people think it was a complete and total hoax. I, for one, thinks it makes more sense that the plane went out and basically crashed into the ocean, but into one of those areas that I'm talking about that has been removed from existence by, you know, obviously they didn't remove it physically, yeah. but I mean, if you cut it out of the idea of GPS, well, when you have boats down there searching for this lost plane, well, they, they would never go to the area that technically doesn't exist. And it might be hard for people to understand that, but I think once I learned kind of the vastness of these oceans, you know, we kind of picture everything on such a small scale. It's hard for us to imagine, think of how big your city is, and then from there, your state. These are huge areas. So when you're talking about the Southern Ocean or the Pacific Ocean, it's such a vast amount of just water that it's, it's kind of easy to understand that they would be able to remove it. Oh, by the way, the other thing that caught me is I said, oh, shoot, you know, I'm going to go look into cruises because I said cruises would ultimately prove the globe. Meaning since I've now described that a plane can be traveling that distance of 6,000 miles and really come to find out it could be 9,000 miles and nobody would know the difference because that 3,000 has been cut out. I said that couldn't happen with cruises. It would be impossible. The cruise can go 20 miles per hour, you know, if they're flooring it, you know, 23 miles per hour. You know, it can't go fast enough to make up that kind of distance. Well, I went looking and there is no cruise that travels from Australia to South America. If they do, they go up the coast of Japan, go around Alaska, come down the west coast of the United States and then go down to South America. But no cruise crosses that water. Of course, I get people tell me, well, why would they do that? You know, it, there's no land. If something happened to them, they'd be stuck out there. Well, 
that may be the case, but also there is Easter Island down there. You'd think there'd be a cruise that would stop at Easter Island. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who go on cruises actually enjoy the cruise atmosphere and not even so much the places that you go. Mm-hmm. So you'd think that there would be people who would like to take a cruise from, say, New Zealand, go across to Easter Island, and then from Easter Island to South America. And they don't exist. And, and those are the things that make me question why, when I do this kind of research, do I keep turning up things that make sense on a flat earth, but don't make sense on a globe. (laughs) Well, yeah, the GPS thing is interesting. But if you were to consider that GPS is done through towers that are on land, it would make sense that there would be a large chunk of ocean outside of the range and that you could kind of bookend it on each end. And then that middle spot would be missing And at a high enough level in regards to the Malaysian flight. If someone wanted to disappear a plane and they were high enough to know about that, that would be the place to take a plane down for whatever reason. But right. it, it is really interesting, man. And just to, for a minute to get back to mysterious lands like the Iron Republic saga that you mentioned, I've also heard you talking about Tibetan and Hindu legends like Shambhala and Muru Mountain, stories of uh, an imperishable sacred land at the North Pole. Apparently, multiple cultures talk about this, quote, mountain at the navel of the world. And again, I find these polar regions mysterious and fascinating in either model, but I guess the suggestion that I've heard from people like Eric Dubay is that there is some type of magnetic mountain in the middle and that that is kind of why compasses point north. But what are your thoughts on some of these legends like Tibetan and Hindu legends and how they might actually reflect something real? Yeah, and I think it's just to what level are they referring to reality? You know, there is myths in every culture. And we know that. And once you read into them, though, you should understand that the myths usually have a reason for being told, right? Mm-hmm. Rarely is there just some myth that somebody tells that's got no real underlying story that they're trying to get across. So when you look at the idea of Shambhala and the idea of the inner earth or the navel or the cosmic tree or the idea of the tree of life, you know, they all seem to point to the idea of Mount Maru or the center location. And even Mercator, who was considered one of the best cartographers of the time, he drew the map that's got those four continents that seem to be right at the center, which now are completely erased from any maps. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, it calls into question, that's what I always go back to, is that I'm just a big supporter of anybody who's willing to go and do this kind of research, because I think it's been shut off for us. And I think the more people who say, oh, no, you just go up there, you just go up there, then they can look into it and see how there's a lot that blocks you from doing what you think is just so easy. And, you know, the biggest thing for me, you know, going back to even when you said, what is one of the biggest things? Well, east-west circumnavigation of the earth has been done by billions of people. I myself have flown from San Francisco to the Philippines, and my wife has flown from San Francisco to Germany. So, I mean, based on all that, I can say, yeah, people can circumnavigate the earth quite easily east-west. But when you look at the idea of north-south circumnavigation, there's literally two or three people that claim to have done it. And the one who claims to have done it first, it took like four or five years. He's a Freemason. He's a cousin of the queen. He's the one that's in the Guinness book for it. And really, it just doesn't make sense when you look at it and say billions have gone east-west and one or two or three have gone north-south. And I talk about in 2015, Towards the end of that year, I was watching this guy who was going to break the record for 
single plane flight, basically being by himself, a solo plane flight, north-south circumnavigation. And they had this thing called spider tracks where they were going to be tracking this plane. So I was really interested in it. I said, okay, I'll watch this guy. He flew from like North Carolina down to South America, then down to Brazil. And then he was supposed to be on the leg that would go from Brazil across the South Pole. And he was supposed to come out over by New Zealand. And so when you're watching him, he goes from Brazil and hits the South Pole and turns around and goes right back to Brazil. And everyone's like, what's going on? Why didn't you go by the flight path? Then he flew from Brazil to New Zealand across the Southern Ocean, then from New Zealand up to Alaska and then Alaska back down to or to the North Pole and then back down to his home in North Carolina. And then they gave him the record. And that to me was like all the evidence I needed and said, this is ridiculous that there's no way if we lived on a globe that somebody would consider what he did to be circumnavigating the earth, that he even had a flight plan that called for him to go across the South Pole. He didn't do it. He blamed it on weather, said that he got there and there was such a strong headwind that he wouldn't have the fuel to get all the way across. Well, that kind of leads to the whole idea of the flat earth model, which would be, at least in my opinion, the further you get away from the sun, the more treacherous the weather would get. And so I would think you would have a pretty big headwind and you would need to turn around. And that's basically what he did. And so when they give him the record, that makes me say, all right, there's something wrong here. That would be something that would be disqualified. You, you would not win the record for doing something that you didn't do. He didn't circumnavigate the globe north south. And I don't think anybody has. And the reason for that would be explained pretty easily in a flat earth model. Mm-hmm, that is interesting. And you do find that When you get to the figureheads of aviation and exploration and any relevant industry, there's so many members of the Royal Society, so many Freemasons. And then you hear stories like, oh, when they were on the moon, they actually did a Masonic ritual. Or you hear (laughs) that when they found the poles, they did a Masonic ritual. And it's almost like Masonic ritual is code for we completely made this shit up. Right. Yeah. And all the guys that did the discovering of the southern and northern Poles were all in the same organization, Freemasons and from Amundsen and Scott. And yeah, it just certainly seems like it is code. And yeah, Buzz Aldrin, you know, it fully admits that they did this Masonic ritual with the flag on the moon. And it certainly seems questionable in every way. And you look at any of these big aviation events, Lindbergh crossing the Atlantic, all those are shrouded by so much nonsense and kind of like folklore. I mean, if you read the story about Lindbergh, it says that he fell asleep on that flight. And then part of the time he was running out of gas and was 10 feet above the waves. I mean, just things like that that don't seem realistic. That, you know, I don't think somebody was flying across the Atlantic 10 feet above the ocean, <laughs> you know, and falling asleep in that trip. Uh, it just seems crazy to me. But again, you know, who am I to question those things? I just think that when something doesn't look right, then we have every right to explore it further. And when you find out people who are lying to you have done so, then those people shouldn't be trusted anymore. So for me, stuff like the moon landing is so clear. And once you've looked into it yourself and not just simply bowed down to the the intellectual community and what they tell you, you have to believe, because that's basically what it comes down to with the moon landings is you have to believe it if you're going to be in the field of science or if you're going to be considered an intellectual. And to me, that's dogma. That's religion. It's not true science. It's not true inquiry. You know, an inquiry is when you're actually looking and you don't care about what the answer is. And that's really where I came from. You know, I didn't 
look into the flat earth and say, I hope that the earth is flat. So I'm going to look into this and find the earth to be flat. It was a period of time in my life where I was so pissed at everything that I'd been shown and everything I'd been told from religion to science and saw it all as a religion in each in their own way, but with dogmatic foundations that you had to believe in. And I got frustrated and just said, well, I'm just going to research things and see and only believe what I can prove. And it just so happened that the first thing that I was looking into was the moon landings. And when I came to the conclusion that that didn't happen, well, then you have to start asking, well, wait a second. So that picture of the earth isn't true. And from there, then you really start opening up your eyes to, well, if they lied about that, what would they be lying to hide? And from there, then the flat earth kind of unfolds right in front of you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So many of the researchers that have gone flat earth that I've talked to over the past two years, they often say that they started with trying to disprove it and then they realized they couldn't. And now they're just still sitting in that space where they're like, no, I'd love it to be disproven, please. And uh, they just, nothing seems to work. And it's interesting because I look at those, you know, top 10 reasons why the earth is round lists all the time to try to get something out of them. And they always mention a few things that I just think are bullshit arguments. In particular, the idea of flights when people say, well, why don't these people just take a flight once in a while? I have been on four international flights in the past two years since doing that show with Eric Dubay. And every time I try to pay great attention to where I think I am. And it's just too freaking hard, honestly. Like, I can't get any real conclusive evidence from those trips, except that you don't see curvature. I can say that. That doesn't mean the Earth is round or flat. But to say that you see curvature from an airplane, I think, is disingenuous. Right. And people also always try to tell me about these images that we have of the Earth from space, like you mentioned. Yeah. And they're just not true. In one of your videos, you do a side-by-side -side comparison of NASA images, and there are huge discrepancies. For example... South America is to the right of Florida in some images and to the left in others. Spain and the water channels around it often look quite different. The Baja California area of Mexico looks different on these different maps. Yeah. There are these different quote unquote images, in fact. And when I talked to Eric DeBay, I thought some of the line of sight examples with lighthouses that you can see when they should actually be below the curve of the earth, I thought those were pretty convincing. And Neil deGrasse Tyson responded to that by saying, the Earth is not a perfect circle. It's an oblate spheroid that's shaped more like a pear. And so then I think, okay, well, where's that picture of the Earth? Because you only show the blue marble, and you're now telling me that it's a pear shape. So either the top astrophysicist doesn't know what the hell he's talking about, or these images are not accurate at all. Well, and the reason I know a lot of people have a different opinion of Neil deGrasse or these guys than I do, because I do think that they are more beneficial to, let's say, the elite or whoever is telling this lie. They're more beneficial to them if they truly believe it. I think that if you are lying, then, you know, you've seen all these false flags that have taken place, that the reason we usually can easily tell when it's a false flag is due to the acting of the people who are lying. True. Because they have such a hard time crying, they have such a hard time showing true emotion, where we all know what it would be like to lose a family member or to be crying because your son is missing or whatever. So, I think that they they love the people like Bill Nye and Neil deGrasse that are just such firm believers in what they are preaching that I think they're more beneficial that way. Like when Joe Rogan asked Neil deGrasse what the curvature formula was and Neil deGrasse said, oh, you mean the, the gravity drop? Like he doesn't even understand the idea of the calculation for the curvature formula because once you're in that business, 
those things are already assumed. There is no need to question the curvature formula of the ball Earth if you've gone into astrophysics because you know that the Earth's a ball. So he comes across to me as somebody who has never even considered the idea of the Earth not being a ball. And he answers all his questions like that. He seems to be somebody who simply believes in whatever he's read in a book. And people all say all the time, where are your credentials, Sharon? Where are your college credentials? And I say, well, that's a good thing that I don't have those. Because what we're trying to say is that these people have been taught or have been schooled or educated or indoctrinated in the lie. And so, of course, you know, Neil deGrasse, in terms of astrophysics, is much smarter than I am because he's read the book, which I think is a lie. And he can repeat it verbatim and he understands everything that's in the book. It doesn't mean it's reality. I think people fail to realize we've given a PhD to somebody who has never been to space, never touched space, never tested things in space, but yet we've given them the permission to lord over us that they know about these places like Saturn and, and Jupiter and things that are simply lights in the sky to all of us. Yet somebody's going to tell us that they're actual planets that are, you know, they say Jupiter's 100 times the size of the Earth and Saturn's 10 times as big. But we don't know those things to be reality. And that's what I really think is missing from people is we've allowed people to construct our reality with words and stories. And I understand why you have to add things to your reality that you've never experienced. For instance, I do think Australia exists and I've never been there, <laughs> but I've got enough information from pictures. My mom's been there. I've got friends who have been there. I can find people who don't even know each other that all agree that these places exist. Well, when it comes to planets and things like that, well, then you have to look at it and say, well, who is telling us that these planets exist and that they are as big as they say they are? Well, really, it comes down to just NASA. Yeah, you might have Roscosmos or you might have ESA, but these are all government-run agencies that have learned that by telling you things and showing you pictures that certainly look like they are CGI— that people have adopted these things into their reality. And that's where I think the problem lies. I'm okay with adopting Australia as reality in my world, but I'm not okay with adopting Mars as a terraform planet or Saturn as a gas giant with rings. Yeah, I can see Saturn in the sky. I can have a camera and I can zoom in and actually see what looks like the rings. I can see that, but it doesn't tell me in any way how big that is compared to the Earth or that it's I don't even know what a gas planet is anyway, but <laughs> the idea of these planets, you know, I just I struggle with people adopting them into their reality and people love them and yet they'll never go there. You'll never go to space and yet they, they love it. They love the idea of us colonizing Mars, right? Elon Musk is going to colonize Mars. Why would you want to go somewhere where you can't live? <laughs> Why would we want to go somewhere where we can't breathe? There's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. Why wouldn't we take care of the earth first that we live on? And when everything is perfect here, when no children are dying from starvation, when there's no homelessness, then if they want to go out and explore the stars, by all means, have fun. But until then, I think that's money that is absolutely being stolen from people for basically to construct a lie. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I mean, you make interesting points. And I know you've also looked into Anatoly Fomenko and the new chronology material, this idea that much of history was fabricated and much of the timeline was built around records and documents that nobody has the originals for cooked up by the quote-unquote official Vatican chronologists. And mm -hmm. the Reformation period and the Inquisitions could have largely been about destroying contradictory records and opinions. I find that to be a really interesting perspective. And maybe it's related to the heliocentric model that emerged in largely the same time frame, couldn't you say? 
Yeah, I think, again, it just goes back to the whole idea of people were illiterate. And so the idea of our time scale, Fomenko does a great job of using evidence to prove what he's saying, which is something I didn't get when I was taught history. We were just taught it as it was fact. And none of the errors or the miscalculations were ever even mentioned or the ideas that, you know, well, a lot of this doesn't really make sense when you lay it out. It certainly seems like they taught us a history that was like the Greeks existed and nobody else existed. And then came the Romans and the Romans existed and nobody else existed. And before that was the Egyptians and nobody else existed. Whereas what Fomenko's saying is that all these people existed at the same time. And he starts to lay it out in a way that certainly seems to make more sense. He talks about one of the things that I found to be the biggest problem with our history is I went back because I sell books. I own a bookstore and just an online through my house, not an actual you know brick and mortar. But in looking for these writings like, say, you know, Ptolemy or anybody like that, when I went back and tried to look at their original writings, no matter what, I would always find the date that they wrote it to be the date that we've applied to it. And I kept saying, well, when did he say he wrote it? When did Josephus or these people, when did they say they wrote these books? Because it'll just say 70 AD. But it's like, well, we applied that date to that time way after the fact. So what did they say? And you can't find that information because it's all been rewritten as of 1600. Fomenko claims that the oldest book that we can reliably count on is 1100. And when people hear that, they lose their mind because they say, well, there's books that are way older, but there really isn't. You just have to look into it and see that what you're talking about is if something is copied of a copy of a copy that says that it was originally written in you know, 250 B.C., it doesn't mean that that was written in 250 BC. And then people need to question how we date books because books are not datable by, say, conventional carbon dating. Basically, we date books by writing style and writing utensil. So you could take a piece of papyrus and you know grind it up in the dirt. And if you knew the writing utensil that they used in 250 BC and you knew the writing style, that you could write something, stuck it in a jar, bury it. And if it was found 50 years from now, they would date that to 250 BC. And that's basically the best that we can get as far as dating books and things like that. So once I saw that, then you just look at our history and then it makes sense with the printing press coming out in the 1600s. And like I was talking about earlier, they must have known at that time that whatever people first read, these people are now going to learn how to read. They're going to learn how to write. Whatever we tell them is the truth. They're going to just accept. And when you look at the date of zero, I mean, that's one of the biggest things to me. And I always had a question about that growing up, mm -hmm. but just kind of let it go. But really, when you think about it, picture a period of time where you just went back in the past and said, we're going to call this date zero. Yeah. And anything before that will be a BC and anything. It just would never happen. There's just no way nothing could happen on Earth that would make us at this point say, we're going to go back to this date, call it zero and just readjust all the dates of everything that happened after that. Think of what a disaster that would be unless you were constructing a fake history, in which case that would be the best thing to do because now you've got your starting point and you write every book based on that new date. And that's certainly what it seems like happened. Yeah, man, it is so provocative. And in regards to the timeline and the model for the Earth, I also sometimes consider how ancient megalithic sites and their astrological alignments fit into this puzzle. But I've heard you say that you think a lot of these sites are more recent inventions, that Stonehenge and perhaps the Great Pyramids are only 100 or so years old and then backdated? Yeah, 
as far as the pyramids, I wouldn't say so much a hundred years, but I would say that even if they found them, they would have, you know, dressed them up or done something to them. It's just like with Stonehenge, a lot of people say, oh, well, this is ancient. It's 5,000 years old, but they don't realize we can't date rocks. You have to date some sort of item around there. So they might find some ashes and date that and say, okay, well, this thing was killed at this date. So these rocks must have been here at that time. Which again, it's not an accurate dating method, but they also just have so many things wrong with their narrative. I've heard that they say that the continents drift a foot per year or something like that. That's the continental drift. And, you know, if that were true, then Stonehenge has moved 5,000 feet, which is a mile. So how would it be lined up astronomically if it's moved a mile? Right. So there's a lot of... Go ahead. Oh, just I agree. Oh, yeah. There's just a lot of things wrong with their idea. And, you know, I'm somebody who believes that the North Star has been the North Star. And yes, their stories of Thuban used to be our North Star and that it moves... And they base that on these pyramids, and they say that the pyramid is pointed in a direction that Thuban would have been in, you know, whatever it is, 3,500 years ago. But when I went looking into it, I said I wanted to find the angle that these so-called tunnels were at, and I'm talking about the Great Pyramid, the Cheops. And when I looked and found the angle of these tunnels, or these shafts, as they call them, well, they were at exactly, and I don't remember exactly number, I want to say 31 point something degrees. And so I went and looked at, you know, where they're located. And of course, they're located at exactly 31 degrees, which means that these shafts are pointed exactly at Polaris today. So again, you can either believe that we just happen to live in a time where it's pointed at our North Star today and that they were built at a period of time when it was pointed at the North Star Thuban. And that in between those two times for 3,500 years or 4,000 years, it was pointed at no star as those stars moved into place. Or you can believe that it was built pointed at the North Star of Polaris. And so, you know, to me, it's just I have to look at things and weigh out what makes more sense. There's pictures showing these pyramids and the Sphinx and things like that being repaired. That's what they say they are being repaired. But I don't have a doubt that they could have been built definitely sooner. And when you really go back and look, things like, I don't think, as far as I know, does the Bible ever mention the pyramids? I don't think so. You know, I don't think so. And that's a book. And it depends on when you want to place the date on that. You know, for me, I don't date it very old, but I do think it's one of the older texts that we do have. And so, you know, where are the pyramids in that? And then when you go back, people will say, well, people wrote books about it or they drew about it. But again, follow that line of inquiry and you'll get to the same thing. Things that were printed after the fact that were copies of copies of copies. And, you know, you've got people who argue with me about the North Star and say, but there's these cave paintings, these cave paintings show that the Thuban was the North Star. And again, we can't date cave paintings. And it's very easy to lie about something like that. It's very easy for somebody to go into a cave, paint Thuban as the North Star, and then find it a few days later and everyone believe that it's an actual cave painting. So, you know, I, yeah, I'm definitely somebody who believes in, in the new chronology, not so much exactly as Fomenko has laid it out, but I think he definitely gives us a better starting point and I just like to follow people's line of thinking and evidence. And it doesn't seem to me like Fomenko's got this agenda-driven narrative that he's telling. It seems like he's trying to actually come up with the true history of the earth. And to me, that makes more sense than when I look at the ideas that are passed through school books that seem to be Mm agenda-driven. Well, I'm with you. Like The way everything's supposed to be moving in the galaxy and solar system with uh, tectonic plates, with continental drift, and these alignments at the dates they're supposed to be built, 
it does not match up. So one of these components has to be wrong. And I think it's a provocative idea, that of fabricating megalithic structures. But to play devil's advocate, you know, dozens and dozens of pyramids and similar stone sites have been found around the world. And it's usually the authorities suppressing these discoveries and blocking excavations, which to me suggests that they want to hide how far back humanity really goes and how advanced we actually might have been in previous ages. But no, it really is hard to say. It is hard to say, but that's a great point. And that's actually why I don't, I've never really done a video and said the pyramids are only you know 200 years old. Because I do think, like you said, we're lied to, we know that. And so anybody who is doing the kind of work that I'm doing or you're doing or conspiracy researchers are doing are really fighting an uphill battle, basically. You're having to come up with ideas and kind of see what, fits the evidence. And so, yes, the pyramids could be something that was recent, but also, like you said, they could have been something that was found that was very old, that, you know, would make sense to me that it was pointed at Polaris if I think that Polaris has always been there. And so I'm not somebody who can say whether or not the pyramids are ancient. I do think that there's tons of evidence that humanity has been here much longer than we think and maybe goes through cycles. And I, you know, I don't think this particular cycle, if you want to call it that, is very long. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the date of zero was kind of the start of this particular epoch, if you will. Mm -hmm. And that there is evidence of past civilizations. And maybe what they're doing is kind of always the same thing, which is lying to the people that come about, trying to tell them one story. And that's the one thing that I, I not fear, but the one thing I fear about what I'm doing is or am I just giving these guys the answer to their problem basically by pointing out things that don't work in their story? If they were ever to take out humans again for whatever reason, then they could come back and their story be even better. That's the one thing that you know makes me think about what I'm doing because it seems like sometimes that that's the goal. You know, they're building underground tunnels and building underground shelters and seed vaults as if they're expecting some event. Right. Yeah, like they just bring in a new shipment of cattle to the slaughterhouse and they refine their manipulation every time. I mean, it's a dark idea about complete and total control and domination, but it's a possibility you got to consider. Yeah, you got to consider it. And I mean, for me, I've always questioned the Bible not having any dates in it because I've always thought to myself, well, it seems crazy because when you look at the earth and let's say that they're right about the population of, you know, 7 billion or so. I, I can't picture them being able to kill 7 billion people. But if you looked at it and just said, let's pretend that they could, or a vast majority of those, and then you bring out the Bible again, and there's no dates in it. So you could lie to those people, mm -hmm. and there would be some people that would still, for instance, let's just play in pretend world that something happens to everyone on the United States. Or even it's, you know, it's widespread destruction over, say, you know, half the, the so-called globe. And so all these people then remember stories of people who lived in America and, oh, what a great place it was. And it kind of reminds you of the things about Atlantis, where there is stories being told about this place in the past and where it was and what kind of things took place there. But it seems like that memory kind of gets lost. And I could picture that to where within a generation or two, the idea of what America was or who once lived there or what technology they once had could be erased from people's minds simply by word of mouth. And, you know, if there was some sort of destruction and our, say our infrastructure went down or the internet went down, 
pretty quickly you'd be able to have people who would only talk about America as a memory, a distant past. And so, yeah, that's probably the one thing that, you know, I still question is what is their their end goal here? Because I think some things that we've pointed out with NASA are clearly seen for anybody who's doing the research. And once they start looking into these pictures of the Earth, pictures of these other planets, the idea of space travel, the idea of even the ISS orbiting Earth, that these pictures are not real and they keep putting them out there. And it makes me think that could possibly they have some sort of end game where they don't care because they know it's coming. Otherwise, it seems mm-hmm. to me like they are not doing the kind of work that looks like they're trying to protect the lie. Amen, man. I'm definitely with you that there are huge inconsistencies that can't be denied. And I do really enjoy your videos. And before we get out of here, remind the people where they can actually find those videos and continue the journey if they want to go deeper. Sure. And I totally appreciate you having me on. Like I said, I've been a fan of the show for a long time. So Thanks. appreciate that. And uh, yeah, there's jaronism.com and it's J-E-R-A-N-I-S-M. And then I've got the YouTube channel, Jaronism, which is youtube.com slash Jaronism. And I also do a show live on Sundays on a channel called Globusters. You can uh, search for that. It's got like the Ghostbusters kind of logo, but with a globe instead. And I also do a radio show from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. Pacific on Monday nights on Truth Frequency Radio. And you can find that at tfrlive.com. Right on, man. Well, whatever people think about the Flat Earth model, you're definitely a great guest and good speaker to talk about it with. And thanks again. The rabbit hole goes deep. Take care of yourself out there, man. Appreciate it. You got it. Peace. There we go, guys. Jaron Campanella of Jaronism. I hope even non-Flat Earth listeners were able to enjoy that and get something out of it or find some common ground with Jaron or understand where he's coming from, at least. I know some people will wonder why I would do another Flat Earth episode, and the fact is that the Higher Side Chats is a show about the full range of alternative perspectives, and we've had an increasing number of guests go flat. Sophia Smallstorm, Santos Bonassi, Marty Leeds, Matt Landman, Mark Devlin. This is really no small number, and it's a very weird place for me to be because Flat Earth wasn't a thing five years ago, so I was pretty much willing to go to every edge, no pun intended, but no rabbit hole was too deep. And now the envelope has been pushed out even further. But like I said in the intro, I'd rather talk with someone that I feel might go a little too far rather than someone who doesn't go far enough. Because we could talk about pretty much any other conspiratorial subject and be in rough alignment. But it's a strange place for me as the host of a conspiracy show to be more in defense of the mainstream perspective to a degree. But I hope that for the most part you trust that As a curator of content and sort of conspiratorial talent scout, if you will, I'm going to get people on here that I think you're going to enjoy regardless. To me, a lot of this is just kind of a thought exercise about the scope of possible lies. I get the idea that there are so many lies out there, we got to just trust our senses, but there's a lot of data to suggest that our brains filter out more than they let in. It's how we make sense of the world. But we only see a sliver of the light spectrum. We clearly know there are frequencies other animals can hear that we can't. So we have limited senses. My eyes have played tricks on me more than a couple times. They aren't much more reliable than the brainwashing school system anyway. Still, on one hand, you can go watch a video like Eric Dubay's 200 Proofs the Earth is Not a Spinning Ball, which, you know, 200. There should be at least a couple dozen you find interesting, right? And on the other hand, I think the Flat Earth movement has had a rather suspicious rise. 
from nobody talking about it for decades to a time where we don't get through a month of shows without somebody bringing it up. Usually not me, but that's not the point. The point is how we have this Eric Dubay guy in Thailand who makes a bunch of YouTube videos, not to say that disparagingly, that's just a technical description of what he has predominantly done, and he's been convincing enough that many, many people have taken everything they've ever heard from anyone and weighed it against the obviously convincing arguments in a series of videos and said, I'm going to go with the videos. <laughs> As a phenomenon, that's just kind of fascinating to me. I do like Jaron a lot, and he makes a great point when he says the paradigm is what it is, and any perspective that was meant to deceive would have to be built around that so that observationally it made sense. And that's kind of what I was saying about how if the goal here is to convince the population of a snow globe environment that there is no creator of said snow globe, you'd have to construct a paradigm so epic, so all-encompassing as to explain reality itself emerging without that creator, which can only be done if you added space and then said the system that we see is just one of many, so the Vatican came up with a Big Bang. <laughs> I see where the Flat Earth folks are coming from with some of that. But then people smarter than me will say you can prove the Earth is round with a rock and a piece of string. But I think it's a fun conversation to have. Like I said, a lot of listeners have wanted me to return to it. Also, a lot have wanted me not to. But I hope that one episode every once in a while isn't going to kill you. We're here to challenge everything we've been told, right? So, I don't know. But people do get really emotional over this topic. It is strange. And the next episode is actually with a researcher who thinks he's discovered some hidden and fundamental qualities to the universe, but also thinks that the configuration of space and the planets is largely in line with the conventional ideas. And just to a point, of course, or he wouldn't even be on THC, but my point is we always jump around. Maybe it's this, maybe it's that. I can do a cryptid episode where people will say, well, I don't know if I believe in that stuff, but that was definitely interesting. <laughs> but Flat Earth episode responses are way more aggressive. By the way, I do have a cryptid episode planned, but we booked it for after the eclipse, just in case there's any heightened activity. But apparently there's been a record number of flying humanoid sightings in the Chicago area, and we're going to talk about it. But if you like me as a host, and the Higher Side Chats overall, and you find that the THC way is something that you value, support it by signing up for the HigherSideChatsPlus.com for 5 bucks a month, and then you can hear the second hour of each episode, each interview, that is reserved for those who are kind enough to do so. Today's full show is actually more like two and a half hours, but that said, it's always better to get the full interview. Today is no different. And of course, I had a thousand questions for Jaron, and in the second hour, what we focused on mainly was the moon's oddities and its place in the flat earth model, meteors, asteroids, and impacts, using true believers as disinformation and their usefulness, what are the stars in the Flat Earth model? Can we use them to prove one over the other? Also, one of my favorite areas, the ISS, the International Space Station, as evidence that something is fishy and there's definitely fakery going on at NASA. And then a fun little section about Donald Marshall cloning and Jaron's actual contact with rapper B.O.B., I think it's great that he's talked to B.O.B. personally about the Flat Earth, and I'm glad I could ask him about it and get his thoughts on cloning of all things. So 
all around good stuff. Check out his channel, Jaronism, and see what you think. I'm sure any higher side fan would find a few things they'd like, and I'll see you soon with another show. I've done my part. Your move, Earthshape Charlatans, Paradigm Pushers, and Capstone Con Artists, The Construct, your fucking Lucid dreams are so vivid Cause you go to bed at seven And your brain comes alive Cause you hate your nine to five You wake up with a dread And make sure your cats are fed Did your brain talk to a ghost Who moved your coffee and your toast As you listen to the higher side chats You get to your desk And your boss says it's a mess And your soul slowly grows To a place where nothing grows When you think he's not around You insert a steady sound The OM says turn it down And you say it's just the higher side chats Oh, do you think you'll be invited To Bohemia Grove To a Bilderberg Club Oh, do you think you'll be invited by a Rothschild to a party on a submarine Diving down To the center of the earth To the Marianas Trench Your teeth begin to clench From the sulfurous stench The mask you're given doesn't fit Cause you're not one of them Starting today, you'll make plans to get away There's no one to hold you down And the what-ifs start to drown Then you wake to the glare of a cold fluorescent stare And the light winks at you Cause its life is almost through But it's holding on to quit time just like you It's time for the high side chats (laughs) 